So before I get into my message, Jeff has a brief testimony that he wants to share of what something the Lord's doing in their family that's very powerful. Should be good. The past several weeks, we have heard several messages, and even last week on Easter Sunday, the drama, the whole choir production was all geared around the theme of mercy. And mercy has been something that has been uh, really tugging at my heart. God has been using it for the past several months. But a few weeks ago, when Barry preached a very dynamic message, and he preached it from his own heart, something that God was doing personally in his life, it literally knocked me down probably 50 notches or more. To give you a little backstory, I grew up in a family, a law enforcement family. Uh, so my dad was in the sheriff's department, and I grew up with a lens, since I was a small child, of my sense of justice. And Barry touched on that when he talked about mercy, the sense of justice. We all have our own sense of justice. And growing up, that's what I gained. I got a very critical eye for people that broke the law or did things that were not right or hurt me. And so as I, as I grew up, that lens and that type of environment followed me. And I didn't really notice it, didn't pay attention to it until I became a father myself several years later. And God has blessed us with beautiful children, and he has called us into this wonderful, sometimes messy, sometimes adventurous mission of adoption. But along the way, with having children that you adopt and from certain backgrounds, they, sometimes they come with certain behaviors. And not checking myself through the Spirit, being in denial for most of my life, I did not realize that I, I had this, such this critical spirit within me. And so when some of these children exhibit these behaviors, and a lot of them have gotten so much better, and God has done a work in our family. And I'm going to I'm going to give you a little bit of a tidbit of some uh, things that have happened um, in a moment. But along the way, my heart had gotten hard, very, very hard, especially towards some of our children. And to the point where I would at times, many times, avoid them. I would not look at them in the eye. I would avoid them at any possible chance. For me, inside myself, I justified that I was putting up a boundary. I was going to protect myself so I wouldn't be traumatized or triggered anymore. But I'm here to tell you that is a lie from the pits of hell. Because what it is is a form of selfishness. For weeks we have heard messages that are not usually preached. Embracing each other's messes. I don't hear many preachers preaching on that. So for many, many months, well, actually, well, over a year, I wasn't embracing messes. I was avoiding them. I was trying to avoid all type of emotional connection, especially with some of these children. And it had gotten so bad that I would only look at them in the eye when I was scolding them or criticizing them. My wife would try to tell me this, but as a stubborn man, a pride-filled man, I didn't get it. It took the very presence of the Holy Spirit to break down the layers of my heart, break down every rough edge, to make me see what other people were trying to tell me. So on this Sunday, when he's preaching this message, and I wasn't able to attend that Sunday, 
I was in the living room. We were watching on live stream, and I literally broke down, especially during the altar call. I had some of our children near us that I've had issues with, and without even, but without even just thinking about it, I grasped them forward and nuzzled them in my breast like a mother or a true father would. But it didn't stop there. I began to cry and cry and cry to the point where snot went everywhere. Two of our children, two of our adopted children, one of them has had extreme hard behaviors. Both of them were lying down on their face during this altar call. They were literally letting the Holy Spirit touch their heart. God was moving in that room. Things have gotten so bad with this that my behavior has been modeled to one of our children, who is my mini-me in every way. But he, just like me, being hurt by some of the other kids in the house, would take that personally and would harden his heart. So I literally modeled this modeled this type of behavior, modeled this type of, well, it's okay, it's okay to push back, it's okay to hold people at a distance that hurt you. And my son was watching the entire time. But on that particular Sunday, I began to truly feel a crack in my heart. I began to feel the scales come off my eyes. I began to feel things I've never felt before. And well, let me tell you what I mean by that. I'm talking about random connection emotion where I just start crying for no reason. For you macho men in the room, let me tell you what that looks like. That looks like you could just be staring at a child or in a moment all of a sudden you just start crying and your whole heart feels gushy and warm and it's uncomfortable. And it's the greatest feeling I've ever felt in my life. We get to a point, I got to a point where I believe this lie, and that's what it is, this lie that if I just guard myself, if I just hide away, if I just shorten the conversation, everything is going to be okay. If I just avoid them. No. We have to embrace the messy. True love is not loving your cuddly little baby that you gave birth to. True love is loving a nine-year-old child who comes from a traumatic household where he was neglected and abused since he was two or three years old, where he was hated and despised and rejected just because he was born. And it's this little boy that I've had such a hard time with, but it's this little boy that more and more so randomly I keep having this feeling of love towards him. The other day, I was at, I was at our, our table, and this particular child was actually in pain. He was in physical pain. He was sick. This, and, and for such a long time, anytime he would be sick or in pain, a lot of times I think he would be faking, or I would have this hardness. I wouldn't take it seriously. But for some reason, the other day at, this, at the table, I started looking at him. I didn't say a word. And as I started looking at him, I started to melt inside. I started to cry. And the words of the Holy Spirit, which came so gentle, says, the Father's heart will heal your son.
The Lord's doing miracles. The Lord's doing miracles. I got one thing to say, though. Put it, <laughs> put, put, put it out there. I'm going to put it out. <laughs> this particular child um, has um, really struggled in the academic department and in his cognitive thinking. And he is a very, he is a wonderful child and he is able to see things that sometimes I don't see. But one of the things that I wanted to testify on is that um, there's this belief out there about, um, some books have been written about, about unlocking the brain or unlocking the mind. And I'm here to tell you that that is not a fantasy, it's not wishful thinking. I was out in the yard one, one afternoon and I told this, I testified at length about this in, in the men's group, and I talked about how I was outside and the kids wanted to tie heartstrings. And in this particular day, they wanted me to pick out loquats out of our backyard. If you're a native Floridian, and if you know what a loquat is, they're delicious. And, but you gotta, you gotta pick them out, and you gotta pick them because the birds will get to them. And they'll start, they'll start to rot very easily. So they wanted to go out to the backyard and pick out the loquat trees. Well, as we're doing this, I was talking to one of my sons, and I said, yeah, we wanna, we wanna salvage I used a big word. We want to salvage some of these loquats. And the son I was talking to is theologically mind, has a theological mindset. He's a, sometimes a, a smart butt at times. But he, he looked at me and he said, Dad, what are you talking about? What does salvage mean? Well, without skipping a beat, the son that I discounted, the son that I gave up hope on in a lot of ways, Without skipping the beat, he says the word save. Now, for most of you, probably don't think that's a big idea, big thing. This child has struggled with academics. He's given an IQ of 40. He defines a word that most adults can't define. I'll keep going. We're out in the yard again, and my son asked to go to the restroom. I decided to be a smart butt myself, and I said, okay, you need to ask your mother's permission to enter the domicile. Without skipping the beat, my son says, what are you talking about? Dad, I'm like, well, what? That same son turns to me that defined the word salvage and says, what he's trying to say is you need to ask mom's permission to enter the house. Those are only some of the things that God is doing in our family. I'm telling this, and, I'll, and, I, and I'm stopping now, but I, I, I need to say this for just a moment. This is what covenant community is about. It's not about serving in established ministries. That's not how you make real relationships, folks. I'm sorry. How you make real relationships is embracing people's messes and loving them through it. Loving despite the fact that they've hurt you or they triggered you. Jesus was nailed to a cross, and one of, some of his last words was not, God, take them out. It was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I have a long way to go when it comes to being compassionate and, and, and having a sensitive heart, but you know what? God is working in my heart, and I pray that he will continue to work in this body. Bless you, man.
So good. If you have a family, you know that that's a beautiful thing that he described there, for sure. So, speaking of messy, how's everybody doing? Because um, I have this message that I want to preach on baptism. And it's 20 till 12. This is a problem. How tolerant to messiness are we? How are you guys? For real? Like if I go if I go to twelve thirty, will you be upset? Okay, because that's probably the shortest that I would go and actually finish this message. Uh, um, well, let's go after it and see how we do. If you guys can hang in there. So the reality is I've been at Heart of the Father ministry here since the very first service back in 2010. I do not remember a time where we ever preached on water baptism in this church, which is shameful. But we're going to do it. We got our baptismal fixed in the chapel. It's amazing. It literally took us almost two years to get it fixed. One thing after another, everything had to be fixed on it, resurfaced, all the plumbing, all the electric, everything was a mess on it, speaking of messes. And um, so we're super excited about having the baptismal service tonight. So if you guys can hang with me just a little bit here, I would like to actually preach a message on baptism, if you're okay with that. We're going to open to Matthew chapter 28 to start. And I will try to trim down wherever I can. Matthew 28. This is the Great Commission. We're going to read verses 18 to 20. This is hugely important because Jesus has risen from the dead. He appeared to his disciples for 40 days and gave convincing demonstrations that he was, in fact, alive. And then he's getting ready to actually be lifted off of the ground in a cloud and go to heaven. And he gives them a last instruction. This, this, this is what I want you guys to do. We've had all of these times together and this is your mission. This is your calling. So it's hugely important. He says, Jesus came and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So the mission for the church, the command from Jesus is to make disciples, correct? And there's two aspects of that that Jesus points out when he gives them this command, this charge. The first one is baptize in the name of the Father, and Son, and Holy Spirit. And the second one is to teach them to be obedient followers of me. Teach them, he didn't say to obey a few things, to obey everything that I've taught you. Teach them to obey. 
Because that's what disciples do. Followers of Jesus hear His words and we obey them. We don't weigh them out. It's not like a menu. It's not like Publix where you go down one aisle but you avoid the health food aisle. It's not that. This is all of the things that I've said. We're learning, right, as a community. We're learning together to obey Jesus with all of our heart and soul. And like we always told our kids, you're going to obey with a good attitude. With a good attitude. So we're learning. Here's my question. I look at that and I go, baptism is is one of the two things that you say in making disciples. Baptism is one of those two things. So why would a religious ceremony of baptism be part of making disciples? And why would Jesus speak that? That's what I want to know. And the answer is, Baptism is not just a religious ceremony. It's much more than that. It's a demonstration and a proclamation of the gospel from beginning to end. And it's powerfully important for every believer in Jesus Christ to be water baptized. This is not optional. In the New Testament, I'm going to make some strong statements, but you check me out and see if I'm right. Obviously, there's lots of controversial issues about baptism, which I'm not going to answer in full here. Of course I'm not. We could have a message on each one of those things. But baptism is absolutely essential. And in the New Testament, there was not such a thing as a believer in Jesus who was not baptized in water. There was not such a thing. I want to know why that is. That's true. That was unknown because every believer in Jesus, when they put their faith in Jesus, was baptized in most cases immediately. They didn't wait long at all. Even if you remember Acts chapter 16, right? Paul and Silas are in prison at what time? Midnight. They're singing praises to God in the midst of their being in stocks, and you can imagine all that goes along with that in a Roman jail. It wasn't pretty, but Polk County looks like the Taj Mahal compared to what they were in, I guarantee you. They're singing praises to God. God sends an earthquake, shakes the place, the chains fall off, all the prisoners are free. The jailer sees what happens, and he goes, I'm a dead man. If my prisoners escape, I pay with my life. So he takes out his sword, getting ready to kill himself, and Paul says, wait! Don't hurt yourself. We're still all here. He's like, what must I do to be saved? You know he's heard them preaching, singing, worshiping, talking. He's not ignorant of that. They're in his jail. You don't think they're preaching at him all day long? Sharing to each other so he can hear? Look, I'm sure he knew. Listen, what do I need to do to be saved? And he says, believe on the Lord Jesus. Christ, and you'll be saved, and your household, everyone who believes will be saved. And then he goes, and he takes Paul and Silas, because he's, well, he's the one who ordered the beatings on their back, right? You imagine? This guy's in a pretty bad place. He's ordered these guys to be beaten for no reason. He starts, hey, let me wipe your back, man. Let me put some, some salve on that thing and try to heal the, the bad spots in there. And Paul goes to his house preaches the gospel to the people, okay, midnight, okay, it's in the middle of the night, and then he says, hey, it's time for you guys to get baptized, let's get at it, 
You believe in Jesus? Come on, we're going to baptize. They baptized him in the middle of the night the same night. That is characteristic all throughout the New Testament and the book of Acts. We'll look at a couple of references. It's all we'll be able to look at. That is normal Christianity in the New Testament. It was imperative and absolutely essential. The Lord Jesus made it that way. He commanded it and he demanded it as the Lord that every believer be baptized. And I want to explore why that is. It's much more than just a ceremony. I think it's parallel to more like a wedding. Jesus, let me be careful how I say this. You all, my heart intent is not to be edgy. But, but we have in Western culture and American churchianity so much individualism that it's just me and Jesus that have our thing going on. That Jesus now becomes my love connection that I run to whenever I need him. Instead of my Lord, that I have submitted my entire life to for him to live through me and to be glorified in me. And that's not New Testament Christianity. And baptism makes that clear. Living with Jesus without being married is not okay with him. Lord, we just want all the benefits, but no, that, that doesn't work for him. Baptism, if you, if you look at the parallel, is similar to a wedding. Oh, no, we're just good. We just really love, I just really love the Lord. Okay, well, take, take the ring, make the vows, sign the marriage license, change your name, have all of the legalities in place because total commitment is what, Christianity means, and it's the starting place of walking with Jesus. So baptism is definitely part of that. I want to read you a quote here from a veteran missionary in Muslim countries. He's actually an expert in Muslim missions. Here's what he says. Seekers from Islam investigating a relationship with Jesus Christ can explain away many of their activities. If they're discovered reading the Bible, they can claim they're studying it in order to debate Christians more intelligently. If they're seen sneaking into a church building, they can excuse such behavior in the same way. If seen talking to a pastor or some Western Christian, seekers can suggest that they were simply lifting up the attributes of Islam. But they can't explain away baptism. There is no acceptable excuse. At ba- Listen. At baptism, persecution soars because identification with Jesus is real, irrevocable, and forever. Listen to this quote. Baptism is the point of no return. If you're not married to Jesus, why do you have the ring? Why do I see the marriage license? You're making an irrevocable commitment to him when you baptize because you're making a public profession 
that Jesus is my life now. He is my all in all, and my allegiance is due solely to Him and to no one else. That got Christians thrown into the arena and eaten by wild animals because they wouldn't bow and say, Jesus is Lord, but Caesar is too. No, not okay. What baptism does is that it is a profession of faith in Jesus that is irrevocable and that He is the sole, sovereign, and controlling ruler of my life. That's what it proclaims. Because I am identified with Him in every way. And now He is not only my Lord, but He is my life itself. I read a recent story of believers in Iran. If you've been following what's happening in Iran, there's lots of revival that's happening at tremendous price. When you see husbands and wives... This is the kind of discussions that they have behind closed doors. When they come today and they break down the door and they start raping you, what do you want me to do? In Iran recently, they had a baptism service lined up. The pastor of that church had been captured by Muslim terrorists, tortured, killed, and somebody actually saw them dragging him out at night and putting him in a shallow grave. They came that day. All of the people waiting to get baptized are lined up in the church along the wall there. And they said to them, hey, we have some bad news for you. The pastor has been killed, martyred for his faith. But this is what it means to be a Christ follower, and this is what your baptism signifies, that you are one with Him, that you will not deny Him, that He is your sovereign Lord, and that wherever that leads you there, you will go. Does anyone want to step out of the line now? And nobody did, because they know in Iran that that's what it means to get baptized. You're making a public declaration that Jesus Christ is not just my BFF, He's my Lord, He's my Master, and He is my allegiance. There's a word, if you can put it up on the screen, it's a Latin word, this is not to be highfalutin, but it's a word that everybody in the Roman Empire knew, and it's a word that a lot of Jewish people knew in Israel as well because they were part of the Roman Empire. Sacramentum, it means oath. Of course, the Catholic Church co-opted it later and made it to be the sacraments that they have. Baptism is one of those. But what the sacramentum was is that Julius Caesar actually started it. So he was a Roman dictator about 75 years before Jesus came on the scene, so pretty close historically. And he made his soldiers in his army. He was a very successful and famous general in the Roman army. That's how he rose to the top. He made his soldiers take an oath towards him that was called the sacramentum. And this is what it was. The soldiers had to swear 
that they will faithfully execute all that the emperor commands, that they will never desert their post in the service to the Roman Empire, and that they shall not seek to avoid death for the Roman Republic. Don't run from the battle. Even if the odds are against you, you're going to stay and fight. That's the oath that they took called the sacramentum. And the early church fathers picked up on that language, and they called the baptism, water baptism, the Christian sacramentum. Oh, I thought it was just a religious ceremony where we go in there and we get dipped in the water. No, 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 no. It's a proclamation to heaven and earth and hell that I stand for Jesus and with Him. He is my life, and wherever that leads me, there will I go, and I will not compromise that journey. That's powerful. Remember the Scripture in Matthew 10? 32 that says, therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. Pretty weighty stuff. So there is no New Testament believer who is unbaptized. You say, well, what about the thief on the cross? Okay. If you only have a few hours to live and you're nailed to a cross, and then you get the revelation of Jesus, I'm going to say you're okay. <laughs> I'm going to say you're going to be okay. He, he'll make an exception for you. What's your reason? Well, it's sell to the Lord. Why? This is the doorway into discipleship. Do you, do you see why this is important for discipleship? Because Jesus wants to and did all throughout church history, really the early times where they were persecuted, everybody understood that this is the doorway. When you come in, you're going to say, Jesus, you're my Lord, whatever that costs me. Jesus wanted to set the tone of his followers that it's all in and there's no retreat. That's what baptism meant. I know that's not what it means now so much, but it should mean that, and it still does from a scriptural standpoint. We're owning Jesus publicly. Hebrews 13, right, says, let us go with him outside the camp and suffer humiliation and disgrace with him. I know in America we don't have the privilege of doing that very often. It really is a privilege. Do I wish suffering on myself and my family? No. But my heart posture has to be, Lord, wherever this leads. What would this do to the church in America? This would radicalize the followers of Jesus. Look at my feelings, sir. But your brothers and sisters in Iran are getting beheaded for the name. But see, th th this is why we need to baptize, and this is why they baptized immediately. Oh, you believe in Jesus? Well, that's awesome. And the, the privileges are glorious and eternal and beyond our ability to fathom. 
but it might not be as sweet in this life. And so is that what you're identifying with when you take Jesus as your Lord? I mean, we're going to rejoice tonight in that baptism because it's a powerful, beautiful time where people give testimony to what the Lord has done in their heart and they publicly own Him. But we're a really friendly audience, which is good. But most Christians in history haven't had that and baptism didn't mean to them what it means to us. There's an urgency in Scripture for new believers to get baptized. So, as we make our way through a few verses, hang in there. It's just after 12. You're good. So, five big questions that I kind of want to answer, but I won't fully answer to your satisfaction if you've looked into this very much, but you can talk to me later, and we can talk about it, and I'll give you all kinds of resources, whatever you want, but I just want to touch on them to let you know what we actually believe about water baptism here at Heart of the Father, which is pretty much standard uh, Protestant views, I would say, of, of water baptism. There's some variation inside of that bracket, but... Let me just run through these five questions, and then let's look at three passages of Scripture in the book of Acts, and then we'll be done. Good? Here's the five questions. Is sprinkling or pouring water okay, or is it just immersion? Question one. These have been debated in church history for a long time. Can or should infants be baptized? Number two. Number three. Does baptism save a person? Is there such a thing as baptismal regeneration? Meaning that is the means of causing salvation. Number four, what is the correct formula to say when someone is baptized? Is it in the name of Jesus or in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? I have seen billboards at least three times in my life. There's one on Highway 60, if it's still there, going towards Brandon that says, Upgrade your salvation. Be baptized in the name of Jesus only, according to Acts 2.38. Unfortunately, I haven't upgraded my salvation yet. Um, number five, can or should a person get rebaptized for any reason? So those are five pretty good controversial questions. And I'm sure I won't answer them to your satisfaction, but I will try to give you an answer. And again, I'm happy to. I love this stuff, so I'll be happy to talk with anybody about it. All right, Acts chapter 8. We've got three passages. Two of them are in chapter 8 of Acts and then one in chapter 19. And we'll try to answer some of these from these passages. But I want you to feel the importance, the urgency, and the consistency of water baptism and its importance in the life of a believer. Acts chapter 8, verse 12. We won't read the whole lead-in. This is where Philip goes to Samaria. He preaches the gospel there, and the crowds with one accord were giving attention to what he was saying. He's preaching the gospel. Verse 12 says this, But when they believed, Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Do you see how quickly that happened? Okay, you guys believe? You answered the altar call? Let's go right over here to the river. You're getting baptized right now. 
then go down. So, so let me just make the point there. Did they believe or baptize first? They believe first. Okay. We do believe in what is called believers, baptism, meaning that someone has to be able to understand the gospel, respond to it in faith, and then that's when they're baptized at that moment. So that would give you a clue as far as what we believe about baptizing infants. That is probably one of the most complex questions, and there's lots of scriptures. If you followed that, we can talk later. Um, I think that is the consistent pattern of scripture is that someone needs to understand the gospel and believe it, and then they're baptized. Okay? Verse 34 of that same chapter of Acts chapter 8. So here's the case where. Philip now gets translated. So it's pretty cool. And he sees a eunuch going back to Ethiopia, riding in his chariot. He's reading the prophet Isaiah, chapter 53. How amazing is that? He's reading chapter 53, the suffering servant. In Isaiah, and Philip ran up and heard him reading it out loud. This is the ultimate divine setup here. Do you understand what you're reading? So I backed up to verse 30. And he said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of Scripture which he was reading is out of Isaiah 53, then verse 34 The eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. And as they went along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, Look, water! What prevents me from being baptized? So evidently, in Philip's presentation of the gospel, because the water part isn't in Isaiah chapter 53, Philip must have told him, dude, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you have to be baptized. So they're driving along, and lo and behold, there's water right there. What, What are we waiting for? Verse 37, Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water. Notice, this answers one of our questions, I think. They both went down into the water. Does that sound like sprinkling to you? Does that sound like pouring? No, they both went down into the water. And he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away again. He's having a good day. Really good day. Got translated twice by the Spirit of the Lord catching him up. Like, man, he could get used to that, I bet. Probably the only time it ever happened in his life. You see the point. Baptism was immediate. Clearly, he made the eunuch understand that. Like, if you're going to be a Christ follower, there's this thing that you have to do. Because Jesus told us right before he ascended to heaven, and I still see that look in his eye. He wasn't playing. 
you have to be baptized. Why baptized? Because that is you going like this. With this ring, I thee wed. You are my Lord, and now we are hitched. Let's get baptized. So they went down into the water and came back up out of it. So the, every instance that you see baptism happening in the New Testament, there's always in a river. They're, they're going, they're getting dunked, okay? I get it. In some places, maybe it's not possible. Like if you get saved in the middle of the Mojave Desert or something, I don't know. Maybe, maybe there's exceptions to that, but the point is the picture that Jesus is trying to paint with water baptism is not sprinkling. It's complete immersion. Your whole life now is going down. Your old life is dead. It's like a tomb. You're getting drowned. The word baptizo, the Greek word that's used for baptism, is they used it commonly for drowning. They used it if a ship got fired on and sunk to the ground, that ship was baptized, sunk to the bottom of the ocean. It means immersion. It doesn't mean anything else. So, on those grounds alone, I would say that immersion is, is what it means. There's a reason. It's because the picture that he's painting and the picture that we're declaring of our old life going down into the grave Everything that I was, all of the twistedness in my life, which was multitude when Jesus apprehended me at 15. If you got saved later than that, you probably got 10 times more than I had. But I was so screwed up. My prayer for, to the Lord for the first six months as a believer was, God, I'm so messed up. Can you help me? Can you please help me? I'm so screwed up. Can you help me? That was my prayer life. That's all I knew. But he showed me one thing. I needed him, and I was sure enough screwed up. And he heard my prayer, and he began to untwist me just like he has with you. Immersion is the picture we're painting in baptism, our old life gone. Listen, this is powerful. If we get this and we connect by faith, all of the old stuff in your life from the old man, from the flesh, that has clung to you and keeps crawling back, you know what I'm talking about? That stuff has been cut off and decisively dealt with by Jesus Christ. Because we died the death that he died to sin. And we were raised in newness of life now so that we can walk with him in freedom and in purity and in holy happiness. Come on, this is so good preaching. You're preaching good, brother. Come on, preach. <laughs> Acts chapter 19. Verses 1 through 5. This is really interesting and instructive. And we'll talk about two of the questions of the five in this passage. It happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, 
No, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, this is interesting, notice. Into what then were you baptized? And they said, John's baptism. Here's Paul's point. Okay, you haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit, but if you haven't heard of the Holy Spirit, you haven't been baptized as a Christian. Because if you were baptized as a Christian, you would have heard in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But if you haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit, what kind of baptism did you get anyway? Oh, it was John's baptism of repentance. Come and be baptized for repentance and forgiveness of sins. That makes a really clear point to me that's really decisive that the early believers, and we, we know this from the early church fathers and others, they baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So what then do we do with Acts chapter 2, verse 38, on the day of Pentecost when pre Peter is preaching, and they said, what must we do? Because they were pierced to the heart by his preaching, right? What do we need to do? Because Peter didn't preach a seeker-friendly message, right? He said, you crucified the Lord of glory by your wicked hands. The Lord loves you, though. Come afterwards and get a Jesus teddy bear. Sorry, that's my snarky side. I need to get baptized again. We get that out. Get that out. They were pierced to the heart, and they said, what must we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So, the folk that mostly insist on this, honestly, being baptized in the name of Jesus only are the oneness people. They're not Trinitarians. The oneness Pentecostals are the ones who are most adamant about it. Um, but I would say that this passage shows among other things, that the early Christians would have known about the Holy Spirit if they had been baptized as Christians. And so, in the name of Jesus Christ is not a formula. So, right, Colossians 3.17 says, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Is that what you do? Every time you go to the store, I buy this Coke in the name of Jesus. That's the formula. Are you, are you being scriptural? Are you going to use that formula or not? Like, I buy this Twinkie in the name of Jesus. I don't think you can buy Twinkies in the name of Jesus, to be honest with you. See, it's not a formula. It means I'm doing it for Him to honor Him and through Him. That's what that means. It's Christian baptism as opposed to Jewish baptism. And interesting fact that I discovered as I was just researching for this and just reading is that, you know, Jews had lots of different washings in their ceremonial baths to get cleansed. You know what the interesting difference of that is? They did it themselves. They would go to the bath, they would disrobe, and they washed themselves. They would get down in the water themselves and wash themselves. There wasn't anybody there taking them and pushing their head down, you know? It was just them. So it was very private but the thing about Christian baptism is in the baptism of John, and when Jesus came in the baptism of Jesus, mostly his disciples did it, right? John 4 says they were baptizing more than John was, but not Jesus, but his disciples were doing the baptizing. They were 
having to come publicly and make a public confession and whatever shame that carried with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Jews, you had to come up front and say, hey, I'm making my stand for God. I'm confessing my sins and I want to get clean and get everything about my life right with God. In Christian baptism, you take a stand. And whatever that stand costs you, you take it. Because that's what it means to be baptized. We pray sometimes for boldness. And boldness in believers begins here. I'm baptized. I am identified with Jesus. Everything about the world, I renounce. Everything about other Kings that have controlled my life are idols. I renounce. I have one allegiance now. It's to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so all my decisions now here, this is what I say. I take the one question test all the time, every day. It's very simple. I ask myself, what in this situation would best honor the Lord Jesus? How can I respond in this situation in a way that best honors the Lord Jesus? If you take that one question test all the time, then it makes life very easy. You don't have to figure out all kinds of details. Just ask yourself that question. You might not get it 100% of the time, but you're going to be well on your way to actually walking the way that a believer would walk who is a baptized believer that says, Jesus Christ is my life. My old life is dead. I don't live for myself anymore. All of that other stuff that once drove me doesn't drive me now. Now Jesus is my life, and I'm going to live to the best of my ability by His grace and help for Him and for His honor and for His glory. Because that's why I live, and that's why you live and breathe. So, Holy Spirit, and notice these guys were baptized before, right? They were baptized with the baptism of John, but it wasn't correct, and they didn't have the full understanding of what that meant and of what they were signing up for. And so, Paul just baptized them again. And said, let's get this fixed. Now you're going to take a stand and be baptized in the name of Jesus. And your allegiance is going to be rightly aligned to him. So, can or should a person get rebaptized for any reason? I think there are reasons. I would encourage you, if you were baptized as an infant, and that was the tradition of the church you were raised in, and that was your only baptism, I would encourage you to seriously consider being baptized as a believer. I think that would be scriptural. I mean, don't, don't get mad about it. I'm just saying I would consider it. If it was me, I would. Or if you got baptized as a Jehovah Witness or a Mormon or something like that, I would encourage you to get baptized as a true believer in Jesus Christ. And to think about that. If your baptism didn't mean anything or you can't remember it because you were so young or whatever, I would encourage you to consider it for sure. This is important. It's an important part of the community. Jesus, think again. Jesus is getting ready to be lifted up. I mean, can you imagine yourself in that scene? You're his disciples standing there, and he's giving you his final charge. And as you're watching, a cloud carries him up into heaven. Dude, that is amazing, and that is super authoritative, and you will never forget those three things that he told you there. One of them was, if you're going to make disciples, 
The beginning point of that process is they're going to get baptized in water. Because that's going to set the tone for their whole life. And can I submit to you, can I submit to you that in the American, in the Western church, that hasn't been the tone that has set our course. It's been everything else. It's been all about me. It's been what you see on Facebook and YouTube where everybody has their own designer God. And it's not the real one. And so I have a passion in my heart. What drives me is that Jesus be rightly honored in his own house. That drives me. How this would change our country and how this would change the world if we didn't anymore have a consumer view of what Christianity was. And our relationship with Jesus wasn't a consumer relationship where he's going to be my backdoor man that I can go to whenever I need a love connection. But now he's my Lord. And whatever he says, I'm going to do it with joy, with gladness, and whatever the cost might be. Because that's what it means to be a Christ follower. How that would change our country and the world. We despair because of the political landscape. I do too. We despair because of the moral degradation in our culture. I do too. I hate seeing all that stuff. It grieves me. I can't watch it on a regular basis because it gets in my crawl. It makes me even more snarky than I really am. So... But, but I want to say the fix for this is the salt and the light that is in this room and in this country in all of the churches that are filled with people who claim the name of Jesus. This is not a throwdown. This is not stones or rocks. I'm just saying, how powerful would it be if we got our focus back right? This is our starting point. This is the lens that we look through. We still see the water running down our face. Oh, we were baptized. We were immersed into Christ. And now He is our life. So, having said that, the sign-up sheet is out there for baptism. If you want to, it's not coercion. If you want to get baptized tonight, it would be awesome. If you feel like you want to get rebaptized for whatever reason, be awesome. It's available. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Jesus, thank you. You have been so gracious and so good to us. You have poured out your life for us, and you have relentlessly pursued each one of us in this room by your spirit, by your love, by your conviction. You have pursued us until we finally yielded. We're so grateful that you didn't give up. Lord, we just re-up our commitment and our focus that we belong to you, that you are our Lord. You are the Lord. That is our confession, and there is no other. The world is no longer our master. You are our master. We are no longer our own master. You are our master. And we joyfully carry the name of Jesus without shame, without regret, without fear. Wherever you lead us, would you continue to give boldness to your people and conviction that we would walk before you as Christ followers.
in Jesus' name. Amen.